Good morning, North Boulevard in-house, and good morning, North Boulevard online. Who's glad to be with their church this morning? Everybody? I don't know about you, I love this church. North Boulevard is a special people to gather with, and wherever you are, to be the people of God is a high, high honor. We are in a series entitled Choose Life, in case you're just joining us. We're studying the fifth book of your Bible. It's the book of Deuteronomy. And we go back in time as we study this book to the late Bronze Age, and that will come up a few times in our sermon this morning. But as we get started, I do want to introduce myself. My name is David Hunziker. North Boulevard worships in several locations. I get to be a campus minister over the West Murfreesboro location, which, by the way, founded by Glenn and Nancy Robb, who yesterday celebrated 41 years of marriage. Congratulations, Glenn and Nancy Robb. Happy anniversary. So as we get started, and I need you to work with me in the computer room, because what we're going to do, I'm going to put a picture up for just one second, and we're going to take it down. All right, there's a man in this picture. I want to see if you recognize the man. If we keep the image up longer than one second, you'll read the description of where I got the image from, and that's cheating. All right, so one second, that's all they get. Put the picture up, and down. Okay. All right, if you recognize the man, raise your hand. Okay, if you're feeling particularly bold and you're really confident you know who this is, on the count of three, say his name. One, two, three. Bob Ross. Ross. Who said Bob Saget? (laughs) So close. Uh, Bob Ross. Now, you can put it up. Bob Ross is a famous American painter. Now, North Boulevard has a global influence. If you're watching and you're not an American and you don't know this guy, here's what you need to know. He's the man who for 31 seasons on public broadcasting stations would paint paintings. In just about a 30-minute window of time, he would create these masterpieces. Now, he's not a fine artist, and by his own admission, he would say that. Bob Ross used what is called wet-on-wet painting. He never allowed the, the first layer to dry or the second layer to dry. He just painted, and he never made mistakes. He had happy accidents, right? He would often finish his paintings with a happy little tree. Okay, we're tracking. You know who I'm talking about. So this is Bob Ross. His paintings, and he would be the one to say this, he said, they're never going to be in a museum. They're not truly fine art. Artists of his day, even though he's been dead now for 27 years, artists of his day never really took him very seriously. But he was broadcast on this show called The Joy of Painting because that's all he wanted to exude, the love and the joy of painting. Now, why am I talking about Bob Ross? Because people have wondered through the years, where are these paintings and how can I get my hand on one? Well, the truth be told, Bob Ross um, would donate his paintings to local PBS stations so that they could be auctioned off as fundraising items to support local PBS stations. And that worked. Bob knew that because they're not really fine art, the people who would value his paintings the most were ones who had a connection to him. That's what Bob knew, and it was a successful strategy for raising money for PBS. I should also tell you, I'm mentioning this to ask you this question. What makes a person valuable? Not just a painting, what what makes a person valuable? Interestingly, we categorize value in terms of economic gain. Is a person valuable because of their usefulness to society, their production and business? Are they valuable because of outward appearance or beauty? Are they valuable because of athletic or intellectual prowess? I sure hope it's not intellectual prowess. 
because in my notes, I just recognized I misspelled intellectual. <laughs> How many L's do you need, anyway? Um, what makes a person valuable? This is a fair question to ask. If you were to study your Bible and go way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, you'll notice that God creates the heavens and the earth, and as he creates, he creates in a certain poetic rhythm. A certain poetic rhythm. He begins with, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be an expanse, and there was an expanse separating the waters. Let dry ground appear, and it did. Let vegetation appear, and it did. And then he changed his creative rhythm, and if you will, he channeled a higher level of creative imagination and power when he said, now let us create man in our image. And it was time for the pinnacle of creation to be introduced. Mankind created in the image of God. So if you're like me, you have at least one picture somewhere in your photo albums where you're in a beautiful scenic environment. For me, I was hiking Gorham Mountain in Acadia National Park in the state of Maine, and I got up on the side of the mountain and I put panoramic mode on my phone, and I slowly worked left to right. I caught sand beach in the west, I was catching wildlife and beautiful scenery around Acadia National Park and the, the rugged coastline, and I'm working my way to the right. And as I get to the far right, just about to finish my panoramic picture, a, a, a solo hiker wearing a bright orange jacket jumps into the frame. You have anything like this in your photo albums. And I was so frustrated because it was just the perfect scene that I was capturing. And I've looked back on that photo, and through the years I thought, can I crop this person out? Um, can I paint over them or do something? But if you read your Bible, you would know that it's that person, the solo hiker wearing that bright orange jacket, that is the most impressive piece in the whole panoramic photo. It's the human being. That's the most impressive part of God's creation. This is why David the psalmist says, you, God, made mankind just a little lower than heavenly beings in Psalm 8. You made them lower than heavenly beings, a little lower, You've crowned them, humanity, with glory and honor. A person receives value not by performance, not by beauty, not by athletic or intellectual prowess, but because your value is tied directly to God's view of humanity as the pinnacle of his created order, crowned with glory and honor. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory's Work, The Weight of Glory said, it is possible to think too much of your own glory, and too often, but it is hardly possible to think too often or too deeply of your neighbor's glory. That person sitting beside you or in your house is crowned with glory and with honor, pinnacle of God's creation. So, for the sake of the sermon, I want you to just reflect on this question, do you value human life as God values it? And as we turn our attention to Deuteronomy 19, I just want you to know we're going to be in chapter 19, 20, and the first part of chapter 21. We'll cover that ground really quickly. And as we cover it, I want to point out six ways in which God proves to you how much he values human life. Six protections he puts in place for the value of human life. Six systems, if you will, he puts in place to prove how much God values human life. The first one is interesting. It's a, it's a study in and of itself, and it's the cities of refuge that you read about in various places in your Bible. In chapter 19 and verse 1, God's going to establish three, and then three more cities of refuge. 
These are Levitical cities with a purpose of valuing human life. Let's read. Verse 1. When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he is giving you, and when you have driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, Moses is preaching to Israel, then set aside for yourselves three cities in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Determine the distances involved and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, so that a person who kills someone may flee for refuge to one of these cities. So there's the purpose of the city. Somebody who's killed another can flee to one of these cities for protection. This is the rule concerning anyone who kills a person and flees there for safety. Anyone who kills a neighbor unintentionally, without malice, aforethought. For instance, and now he's going to give you an example of how that might happen. A man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood. And as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. I you wonder, how often would something like that happen? That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. So Dick Cheney has a place to go. That's an old joke. I wondered. It's a little dated. Deuteronomy 19, now verse 6. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him even though he's not deserving of death, since he did it to his neighbor without malice aforethought. So he says avenger of blood. He's going to mention the avenger of blood a little bit later in this chapter again. So let's talk about that. The avenger of blood is a designated family member, often the closest male relative to the fallen, who would, this is a primitive justice system, who would go and avenge his fallen family member to restore justice and peace to the family. Before you would have had the amount of complex systems of justice that we have today, this system of justice served a purpose. And that is, it's no small thing to take the life of a human being. Let's continue reading. This is why I command you to set aside for yourself three cities. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he promised an oath to your ancestors, and gives you the whole land he promised them, because you are careful to follow all these laws I command you today, to love the Lord your God, to walk always in obedience to him, then you are to set aside three more cities. As your territory grows, you need three more. Ultimately, they don't need to be too far away so somebody could flee there. By the way the land was divided, these cities of refuge are no farther than 35 miles away from any point in the land of Israel that you could flee for refuge. Do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land which the Lord your God has given you, and so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. The, the blood of the innocent sits on the ground and testifies against the people, cries out against the people. And God is so mindful of that innocent blood shed that he provides, number one, cities of refuge. Number two, he establishes murder as a capital offense. And now here's where I have to put a few disclaimers in on the sermon. One, I am preaching Deuteronomy chapter 19 to North Boulevard Church of Christ, a church I love. I am not preaching a policy for the United States of America. I'm not preaching uh, any kind of a political or sermon bent on government. I am preaching the truths of God's word that we might learn the message he was sending to them then and the message he's communicating today. So, Murder as a capital offense, Deuteronomy 19, 11 through 13. But if out of hate someone lies in wait, assaults and kills a neighbor, and then flees to one of these cities, 
The killer shall be sent for by the town elders, be brought back from the city, and be handed over to the avenger of blood to die. Show no pity. You must purge from Israel. And here's that line again. The guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. It is no small thing to take the life of an image-bearing human being of God. And I will reinforce that by this Bible verse from Genesis. Notice this. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed for, and notice God's emphasis, for in the image of God has God made mankind. His emphasis is this. You just killed an image-bearing person who's the pinnacle of creation, crowned with glory and honor. That's no small thing. And God is interested in defending and protecting his image on the earth. Hence, this punishment, capital crime. Number three, as we continue to work through the text, God establishes a, a need, a necessity for honest witnessing in court. You read that in verse 15. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of a crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Imagine how many lives are spared because of this good policy. Two or three witnesses. Otherwise, if I have a beef against Stan, I could take him to court, my word against his, I could accuse him of a capital crime and innocent blood be shed. But to protect human life, it must be established that two or three witnesses, and if a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who were in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation. And if the witness proves to be a liar, that's breaking one of the Ten Commandments, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then due to the false witness, as that witness intended to do to the other party, you must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, that this message might be communicated. It is no small thing to take the life of an image-bearing person, pinnacle of God's creation. Number four, go to chapter 20 and, and look at verse 10 with me. Peace before war. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. How many human lives would be spared because of this order of God? You're going to a distant city, make this offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, then lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, you can put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves. And you may use the plunder for the Lord your God, the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. This is how you are to treat those cities who are distant from you. So he's not giving this command for the nearby cities, but for those who are distant. And I want to make a quick point on this. God is a God who offers peace first. As a matter of fact, you live in the day and age where a peace offering has been extended to you. When Jesus, the Messiah, came, he didn't come to wage war against you. He didn't come to condemn you. He didn't come to end what he probably should have ended in sinful humanity. He made a peace offering to you. And if you will accept that peace offering, you'll be spared from the judgment to come. This is a type of that peace offering that God has made for his people today. And then, number five, expelling detestable practices. So I want to make a note. 
that so far you might be tracking and thinking, I'm resonating enough. I see how God is valuing life. I see the protections he's put in place. This one, too, will prove how highly God values human life and his own, his own honor. But his strategy here won't resonate with many of you. The strategy that he uses to prove that and to send that message doesn't, frankly, resonate with me. But I do trust God that in this day and age, the late Bronze Age, through the prophet Moses, in the time that it was appointed, God sent the message the way he needed to send the message. And that we too today might understand what he's communicating in Deuteronomy 20. Here it is. However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the, and notice these words, detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God by doing them. These detestable practices had to be expelled, and the people dispossessed. If you've been a part of this series for any length of time, you've heard this, I'm already tired of saying them, but we need to remember. One, the detestable practices of worship in this pagan land was the mutilation of human flesh, cutting open human flesh for the sake of worship. Number two, it's orgies with temple prostitutes that lead to babies being born. Number three, those babies often sacrificed to Molech. These are detestable practices that do two things. They dishonor God and they devalue human life. And God is sending this message very clearly. A clock is ticking today, and it was then. A clock is ticking on all who dishonor the one true God and devalue human life. Amen. It's a sobering message, but we need to hear it. A clock is ticking on all who dishonor the one true God and devalue human life. And by expelling these people, God ushered in a new order where the Jews were taught and held out high value of human life. And number six, accepting animal atonement. Now we're in chapter 21, verse 1. If someone is found slain, lying in a field in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it's not known who the killer was, your elders and judges shall go out and measure the distance from the body to the neighboring towns. Then the elders of the town nearest the body shall take a heifer that has never been worked and has never worn a yoke. They're to lead it down to a valley that has not been plowed or planted and where there is a flowing stream. There in the valley, they're to break the heifer's neck. The Levitical priests shall step forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister and to pronounce blessings in the name of the Lord and to decide all cases of dispute and assault. Then all the elders of the town nearest the body will symbolically show their innocence. They'll wash their hands over this heifer. And they'll pray this prayer. Our hands did not shed this blood, and our eyes did not see it done. So accept this atonement for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, Lord. And do not hold your people, here it is again, guilty for this bloodshed. It is no small thing to take the life of an image-bearing human, pinnacle of God's creation. That's why they're praying this prayer. Don't hold us guilty. Then the bloodshed will be atoned for. And you will have purged from yourself the guilt of shedding innocent blood since you have done what is right in the eyes of the Lord. That's our reading for this morning. This uh, breaking the heifer's neck kind of symbolizes two things. First, we honor the slain. 
And there must be some act of justice that shows we honor this slain person. We care about this slain person. By not shedding the heifer's blood, but by breaking the heifer's neck, the elders are also symbolically saying, our hands have not been in blood today. We have no part in this. We hate it, but we didn't participate in it. And God says, then the guilt will be atoned for. At least he took the animal sacrifice and not an innocent life in response. Now, I read these texts as a young man, and as probably with many of you, so much doesn't resonate. So much, I think, I'm glad I didn't grow up in the late Bronze Age. I'm glad I didn't have to look over my shoulder because somebody might be coming after me or hunting my head or an invading nation could come in at any moment. Of course, these things happen. But it doesn't seem to be that we devalue human life as they did. Maybe, maybe we've come to a place where we seem to value it. And then I think a little more. And what I've come to believe and study for this is that actually we don't. We're just more sanitized. And we're a little bit more sophisticated in the way we devalue human life. And the reason I say that is because there are at least four, and I've chosen four for the sermon, ways in which we are devaluing human life today in the West in the 21st century that are gross devalues of human life, but we're tolerating them because they're somewhat sanitized and maybe a bit accepted. Let's work through these, and let's respond as the people of God. So the scriptures teach us, the people of God, that we are to value human life even more than our own. That's from Philippians. And we who know Bob Ross the painter should have at least a little bit more respect and reverence for the painting, which is human life. So here's the first way that you can value human life. Number one, advocate for the unborn. Advocate for the unborn. Melissa Oden came and spoke right here where I am at North Boulevard in 2017 as part of a School of Christian Thought event. She's the survivor of a failed saline abortion in 1977. When the abortion didn't go as planned, she was labeled a complication. And once she was set aside in this hospital room, God, thank you, a nurse who was attentive heard Melissa grunt, and that was enough for the nurse to move into action. Others in the room would have been happy just to wait it out and to see her die. But the nurse cared for Melissa. Ultimately, she developed well. And she now is an advocate for the unborn, taking a personal mission to share that, yes, even the unborn in the womb, as small as they are, is an image-bearing human being, pinnacle of God's creation. And though the crown might be smaller, they're still crowned with glory and with honor. When she grew, and as ceremonies happened in the church, people dedicate Bibles, and they mark their favorite Bible verses, and sometimes students and her church students would get these Bibles. Her favorite verse that she always marked was from Jeremiah 1. You can imagine that this would be one she clings to. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. She would also highlight Psalm 139. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. There are a few things we learn in these scriptures. First, God is active in the womb. And though you might not have had a plan, God has a plan for the unplanned. 
As I was studying these scriptures, almost perfect timing, I would attribute this to the Holy Spirit. Although, well, you decide. I was studying these scriptures and writing these notes, sitting in the playroom with my kids. They're playing in front of me, and one of my daughters is holding a toy. Well, it's a toy that one of my sons really wanted. So what did he do? He comes over and he takes that toy right out of her hands. And you can probably say verbatim what came out of her mouth. Hey, I was playing with that. And a part of me reflects on these scriptures and hears that same cry of God. Hey, I I had that one in my hands. And then you took it as though I didn't have a plan for this life. Melissa's mission, in her own words is to tell whoever will hear it that every child is a unique thought of God. And this is true. The scriptures are clear. God is active in the womb. So what I'd like to communicate to you is that you can today advocate for the unborn. And first, let me just address the youngest in our congregation. So if you're young, you might be entering the dating scene. I'm trying not to look over here too much. Okay, no, let's just all just look over here. <laughs> no, um, you're, you might be entering the dating scene. The way you advocate for human life, the value of human life, is by following Christ's sexual ethic. So Christ has established that a man and a woman would leave father and mother, get married, develop first a love between themselves in a stability, a rock-solid stability, out of which another human life can come. That human life is then born into a stable home with a mother and a father who have dedicated themselves first to God, then to each other, and then to that newborn baby. And you will really, truly never, never feel ready to have a baby. (laughs) But the Holy Spirit at the center of a marriage will prepare you to care for it well, him or her well. You advocate for the unborn when you follow Christ's sexual ethic. Now. And when you help others do the same. You also advocate for the unborn when, God forbid, something happens out of order. But you've chosen today that the baby will live. The baby will live. And it might be hard and awkward. Maybe you'll be filled with shame, but you trust your church to help you care for this child and for you. We would love you through it. You also advocate... For the unborn with the way we use our language. God is active in the womb, in the life of an image-bearing human, and we need to speak that way. Second, this is another way to honor and value human life. Honor the elderly. So we actually live in a day and in an age where life is not valued on the front end or the back end. So the elderly go neglected, disregarded, generally ignored. And to change the tone in the room a little bit, I just want to share something that's kind of humorous as I studied this week. This is John Sorensen at the age of 92. He's since passed. But in a live TV interview, the interviewer said, John, at 92 years of old, what does it feel like to wake up in the morning? He said, surprised. <laughs> you, you get to a certain age where you can say that kind of stuff. He just generally felt surprised. A comedian once shared that you turn 21, you become 30, you push 40, you reach 50, you make it to 60, but you hit 70. (laughs) Some of you can resonate, you know, this is how it goes. The elderly go generally disregarded, ignored. There's something that without saying it, 
verbally is being communicated in our society, and that is after a certain age, you no longer matter. After a certain age, you no longer matter. After a certain age, you have nothing you can contribute. After a certain age, you're irrelevant. So I played around with an app, and uh, you might have played with this same app. I, I found a picture of myself. Actually, first I found a picture of me and Kristen, and I did this. And then I realized I want to sleep inside tonight, so I'm not going to do, I'm not going to show that. I found a picture of just myself, and this is what I look like in my old age. <laughs> I cannot say that I have walked a mile in the shoes of the aged, but I can say I've stared this man in the eyes this week. I've looked at him in the eyes, and I've asked him, what do you feel like? How, what hurts? <laughs> what hurts emotionally? And I went ahead and and did other pictures of the staff. I'm not showing those. I didn't seek permission. But there is one other staff member that I'm close enough to. I felt it's fine. This is Russell Rigsby and his son, Slade. And, uh, or should I say his grandson, if you'll change the picture, Slade, right there. So <laughs> I didn't have to ask permission. We're close enough. Right, Russell? We're good. Um, I asked him. I said, what do you feel like? What's changed in your life? And the way that the answer came from both of us is this. Ignored disregarded, irrelevant, behind the times, like we have nothing we can contribute. Things are changing so fast that I might not even have to look like that before I feel that way, right? It's like, I can't keep up. I don't feel like my voice matters anymore. Generally, society is saying after a certain age, you just don't matter anymore. But the truth is, Human, humans are not like cars. You drove your car off the lot and immediately it depreciates in value. And every year you watch that depreciation over time. Humanity does not depreciate in value. As a matter of fact, if you'll put up this next verse, you don't depreciate in value. You might actually be stepping into your value. Psalm 73 says, and it's not a Psalm of David, it's a Psalm of Asaph. He says, my health may fail. My spirit may grow weak. But God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Your, your value is not depreciating. Your value is tied directly to the fact that you have an image of God impressed upon you. And your God is yours forever. You are his forever. And your value is eternal. You actually are stepping into your glory. Your glory days are not behind you. You're just now stepping into them. And I will say this to the younger uh, generations. And you have to decide what that means. There's an old school practice for how you can honor the elderly that I think it's time to resurrect. And this is it out of Leviticus 19. Stand up in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly and revere your God. I am the Lord. So to read this text in the 21st century, he says, put your phone down. Look up, get off your rear, and then make eye contact with that older person who entered the room because they are a person too, and they matter too. And it's a sophisticated way, isn't it, in which we devalue life. Maybe it's not like the late Bronze Age, but we devalue life when we don't look an old person in the eye for the person that they are. Put your screens down, stand up, and honor the elderly. Number three, defend the exploited. Defend the exploited. So there are multiple ways in which someone can be exploited. Exploited for labor. There are also many millions who are exploited for sex. And I want to speak on that one today. 42 million, 
42 million is the number of pornography websites available today. That's over 345 million pages of pornographic material. The porn industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, NBA, and the MLB combined. You know these statistics. Some of you already knew that. 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to pornography. 94% of children will see pornography by the age of 14. These are sobering statistics. Communicating this message, we have found a sophisticated way to devalue human life. A multi-billion dollar industry that devalues human life. Must not be so in the church. We read this concerning the church. Among you, North Boulevard. Again, I'm speaking to the church. I'm speaking to you. Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. I want to mention a few things before we go on. First, that word improper means it doesn't make any sense for us to participate in these things because they dishonor God and they devalue human life. And there is a multi-billion dollar porn industry that's asking this question. The industry is asking this question, how far can we go? They're asking this question, how young can we go? How much money can we make? Who will help us boost revenue by getting more advertisers involved in our industry? And the way you speak to that industry is with your viewership. Every view, every view is a vote to devalue human life. Every view of any sexually explicit content is a vote to continue to devalue human life. We participated in it. And out of the church who knows the creator God should flow more value and respect and reverence for human life. Hence, this quote from David Platt, and I love this quote. He says, And every time we indulge in pornography, we deny the precious gospel truth that every man and every woman possesses inherent dignity, not to be solicited and sold for sex, but to be valued and treasured as excellent in the eyes of God. If you're sitting here and your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak, then I want to invite you to celebrate recovery tomorrow night right here at the East Murfreesboro campus where you can begin building new habits, new framework for thinking about life to truly value human life and get help with this sin. Because to dishonor God and to devalue human life is improper. It makes no sense for the people of God. And I also will say this. Right now, Satan might be whispering something in your ear. So if you've attempted abortion or you've had an abortion, or if you are absolutely hooked on these materials that I just mentioned— He's probably whispering this to you right now, that you are dirty and rotten and you too have no value. I want you to know something. When Jesus went to the cross, he carried the sin of abortion with him. And when he went to the cross, he carried the sin of pornography with him. And you can be forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ today and loved and truly valued. I don't want you to hear the voice of the evil one from this sermon today. That's not what I'm saying. But we stand together for the value of human life, which is why even those who have committed these sins must stand together for the value of human life as we repent and as we learn to live life differently. Number four, and we'll wrap up with this one, love your enemies. Love your enemies. If you took Deuteronomy 19, 20, and 21 to Jesus, which we were taught earlier in this Deuteronomy series to do, 
then Jesus would say, hey, there is a way for you to fill full this commandment. And it doesn't stop at Deuteronomy 19, 20, and 21. Jesus says, if you want to fill it full, if you want to really value human life, then you will love your enemies. And I can't think of a better story than that of James Calvert. He was a missionary, a Methodist missionary in the 1800s. He was sent out in 1838, sent to the Fiji tribes that were warring and cannibalistic in nature. That's who he was sent to. When he got on the ship, so if you know anything about James Calvert, this might be the line that you know. When he got on the ship, the captain pleaded with him saying, go home, they're going to kill you. And he said, oh, that's okay. I've already died. I'm already dead before I got on the ship. Speaking of his conversion to Jesus Christ. When he goes to the tribe, sure enough, the motto for your enemy is, I kill and eat my enemy. That's what the Fiji tribes were doing. Which means immediately you feel better about yourself because you have not roasted your manager at work. He, God spared him miraculously. Um, James had a successful ministry among the Fiji. He died at the age of 79 in England, which is a miracle. He was spared and he was effective in his work. As he proclaimed the gospel to even the king of these tribes, he proclaimed, one, that God is a good and holy God. Two, Jesus has come to, to, to separate, no, to fix that which separates you from God, your sins. He's come to die on the cross for you, and he loves you. And three, all of the teachings of Jesus matter, include this one. You are to love your enemies, Jesus said. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. James makes sure to teach all the gospel to these these tribes, and eventually the king of these tribes unified the Fiji, stopped the cannibalism and the war. I love telling missionary stories because one, the Great Commission will not happen until we have more missionary stories. And two, because where the gospel goes, human life is valued. And good things happen wherever the gospel goes. So, there is a, a challenging test that everyone here will face. And I haven't faced it quite as challenging as some of you have. Generally speaking, I've been respected, and I've been loved, and I've been cared for, and I have enemies like somebody who cuts me off in the parking lot, and that's about as bad as it gets. A lot of people who have treated me well. Some of you have been abused, mistreated, neglected, abandoned, and the hurt runs deep. And to think about loving your enemies is not such a trivial thing for you as it might be for me. But I would just share with you this test that has been set before you is the ultimate test and whether or not you value image-bearing humanity. The ultimate test is how you treat those who mistreat you. This is the way that you say, I value humanity because they're image-bearers, not necessarily because of how they treat me. And your spouse, for a period of time, you might value simply because they're made in the image of God. A coworker, because they're made in the image of God. A sworn enemy, simply because they're made in the image of God. So coming back to Bob Ross for a minute. This is Bob Ross in season 10, episode 12, painting Winter Frost. It's my least favorite Bob Ross painting, to be honest. I don't know what it is. Maybe the colors, the way the sun looks in the sky. I like Bob Ross, but this is not my favorite of his paintings. However, if I were to get my hands on it, I would proudly display it in my home. I would protect it. I would honor it. Why? Because of the connection I feel to this man. That's not my favorite painting, but it would be central in my house just because of this connection. 
the further we remove ourselves from God, the further we remove ourselves from each other as well. Because the, the God who has created this earth has designated humanity as pinnacle of his creation, crowned with glory and honor. And you have been taught to value humanity above even yourselves, to value others. I'd like to say a prayer as Sean comes up and prepares to lead us in worship. And this prayer is that God would train us and teach us patiently to value each other. Lord, I thank you for this text and for the teachings in it. God, may we be people who value humanity, who wrong or who right these wrongs from the unborn to the elderly to those who have been exploited, even to our enemy. Father, may you teach us to do these things. In Christ's name we pray together. And the whole church says, amen.